you don't want to separate the uh, the work from the artist then. Is that what you're saying? Yes, because I don't think you can. Well, what I found helpful, and I'll give you a good example of, of what I mean by this. Um, when I was an undergrad here at Cooper Union, I this is 96 to 2000. So the, 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 you know, the, the tail end of the nineties and the design on like the scene, you could say it was very edgy and, and very sort of, um, expressive was kind of resurgence of this expressiveness. You know, I think I'm thinking of like people like David Carson and like the deconstructivist stuff that was happening, you know, coming out of Cranbrook and, um, West coast and surfing culture. And, and like, there was just this like energy that was super interesting. And also, a really vibrant new way of making um, graphics for and, and design for music. Uh, and I was enamored by all of this. I was a student. I was like, this is the work I want to make. And so yeah. you know, in, in the, in the space of Cooper union uh, or any institution, like you always are told of the alumni, the illustrious alumni of disciplines. And, you know, since I was uh, going into design, I was well versed in like the the illustrious alumni of design, Milton Glaser, Seymour Quast, um, and then certainly Lou Ballon. And when I saw Lou Ballon's work, I was I, I was aware, you know, that that work was significant. Not really sure why, but it was like presented in the canon, and and I just found it quite corny and quite dated because you know at the time through my youthful eyes i was seeing this is cool this is not we're moving this way this work is kind of fixed here so let's go so you know and then i never really gave him a chance um because i just saw it as this work when i started working here as a curator in 2010 I was lucky to work with Adrian Shaughnessy and Tony Brooke on the unit edition monograph about Herb Ballon that came out, uh, gosh, I am going to blank on the date, but somewhere around like 2012, maybe 13, something like that, a couple of years into my tenure here. And as part of the process of helping them fact check and, and, and do the, the kind of collection of material and they shot the book here from, from the resources, I got to read a lot of stuff about Lavallon and I poured over all of the articles of, of his speeches, uh, that he delivered pieces that he wrote, mostly firsthand accounts and, and kind of saw the relationship with Ginsburg and all of these like objects came to light. And I, I had this epiphany of realizing, wow, this is like a, such a really interesting and nuanced person that I never gave a chance because the work seemed dated and, and kind of stilted to me. And I missed the forest for the trees because it was like, by understanding um, that designer better, I could see what he was doing and I could see past the formal choices. I could see how the, that formal choice maybe stays in the particular year particular time style because those are the tools they're using they're using this, the, the sense of fashion that they have at the time but you can look past that you can actually look beyond those things because you can actually understand okay so he's doing this thing here in this moment and i can see the thing that's often driving him and i can apply that lens and i can see the lesson there's these objects that um he did that um just, just to sort of illustrate what I mean is um, what I understood Lubalin is he wanted things to have meaning. Yeah, Sasha. I, I, let me, uh, uh, this is fascinating, but I just want to let the listeners know who the hell you are. Okay. <laughs> sure. And yeah. That's my problem. That's my fault. Okay, so Sasha 
Tokolovsky is a designer, typographer, instructor, and curator at the uh, Cooper Union's Herb Lubalin Center of Design and Typography. He was uh, born in Odessa and came to the States in 1989. Correct. And uh, Herb Lubalin was a mid-20th century American graphic designer. He collaborated with Ralph Ginsberg on three of his magazines, Eros, Fact, and Avant-Garde. Uh, and he designed the typeface ITC Avant-Garde, and he was colorblind. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and ambidextrous. So with that, uh, with that in place, yes, please continue. All like all of those things about Lavallon are interesting to know. They're not like that's the that's the thing that I'm recognizing, and, and I appreciate like that. All of those things are not just factoids. You know, they're not just like biographical notes. Like I actually started to see how his colorblindness made certain choices, uh, and how that informed his way of thinking in his in his work because i think that color blindness for him to to connect to what i was saying earlier he understood that people decode color and react and respond to color even if the colors he can't see he knew that there's a symbolic quality to them so he would assign colors to some of the work even though sometimes he couldn't he couldn't actually tell what those colors actually look like to him but he knew that to others they would have a certain resonance, and so he used color in this really incredibly interesting way in a very simple. So it was more way. intellectual for him than Definitely. than uh, than physical. Yes, yeah, and yeah, again, like that was challenging my understanding of this like kind of quaint corniness. It was completely like blew my mind because I was like, this is so sophisticated and so smart and so simple. Like the best yeah. example I can give you is the the. Um, the cover, the front cover and the back cover of Eros magazine uh, issue two, uh, yes. the yellow, the summer issue of 62, it, it has like a yellow and black on the front and the yellow and black on the back. Two photographs the of the beach. It's the beach, it's right? The beach on Coney yeah. Island. Yeah, it's a couple um, kind of making out on, on the beach in, in Coney Island. And the back is darker. The darker tones are sort of more dominant than the yellow tones. And then the end papers on either end of, of the book, connecting the case to the book, uh, to the block, are one photo, close-ups of both. Both end, end papers are close-ups of the couple. One is in red and one is in blue. The front one is in red and the, the, the back one is in blue. And I often think of Lubalin needs a reason. Often that's like, you know, and sometimes it's just to satisfy his own decision making. What is this for? What does this mean? You can't just like blankly kind of put stuff like, oh, this looks nice here. So the way I read that is like, there's a day emphasized by the red uh, photograph. It enhances kind of the summer heat and the passion of the couple there. Embracing. Yeah, the beach is is yellow too. The beach is yellow, right. So it's like, it's it's setting the, the scene. Uh, and and kind of setting the story. He's telling a mini story, and the story is like there's time, you know, from the front yeah. of the magazine to the back of the magazine. That's why the front cover uh, photo is yellow, uh, and and the blue suggests dusk, and then the photo after the blue page is the back cover, which is darker. So there's time yeah. lapsing through yeah. the magazine because you've just spent 
a few seconds or a few minutes, a few hours going from the front cover to the back. Yes, and also yes. the suggestion of the couple is still in love. So there's this timelessness to love. Oh, uh, yes, that's nice. So yeah, I, still know, together. I, know, I think it, yeah. it's lovely. It's, it's, yeah. you know, it's like, this yeah. is, this is, I can get by. I can, I, I like this. <laughs> it's also, I mean, that's always great, isn't it? When there's, it, there is something that's underlying it. There is a storyline or there is a, another level of thinking that the the viewer if they spend time with it can cotton on to yeah and i think that he's very conscious in especially in those publications that he did for ralph ginsburg in uh what i think is is a very um good understanding of the relationship of the dynamic as a designer of in the role of an art director is um you have to have respect for the content all of it yeah uh, yeah. Even if it's content that you may agree, disagree with, but it's, it's, you know, it's you're, you're hired to do this and you have to respect the content and you have to respect the reader. And okay. so you, you're trying to make the best experience for the reader with this content and saying like, this article is fantastic. I think you would appreciate it. How do I make that connection? And he's very clear in, in those choices and in, in those. And, and that's again, like what I really appreciate because that to me is not about necessarily the style of that particular article. It's more about that, like, respect. What do we do as designers? This is uh, this is what a, a great writer does, too. A great writer respects the reader to the point where they're not explaining everything. They know you're smart. They know you can fill in the blanks. So, yeah, and in fact, it gives the reader something to do. It, this is what we want. We want to think. We want to join the dots ourselves. Mm-hmm. And you know what's interesting about this is also this is where I feel like the 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 understanding of of biography of someone uh, a designer yeah. and that's kind of my role where I start to really get a sense of where that idea uh, maybe got planted for him in, in his first part of his career the 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 the, the time that um he was starting to get attention and start winning awards he was working for a studio called Sudler and Hennessy and the studio that he was employed by uh after about five years out of college uh six years out of college he was hired by the studio and the studio was only doing pharmaceutical design exclusively yeah yeah. And the interesting aspect of pharmaceutical design in that period, this is before the 80s when, when pharma went big time to consumers or patient, consumer, yeah. slippage, whatever, right? Um, all of the, the, the material was only sent to doctors. And they were in this like kind of perfect scenario where they knew where the material was going and they knew a lot about the doctors. They knew the demographic. And what you said just now is exactly what I think he experienced is the sense I have to make sure that this is sophisticated and smart and make them work a little bit for this because they actually will appreciate the work involved in in decoding if you can say an advertisement but that plays into their a bit of their ego and is like oh I connected the dots it's a feeling of satisfaction isn't it yeah you you you've just bought them into this product yeah and and yeah. yes, it's an advertising tactic, but I think he can carry that over into his other work because he understands like you you uh you don't have to pander. <laughs> you can make things smart, make them work a little bit, and they will actually respect you more for that. Respect the material. Well, you bring up a, of course I've watched uh, 
well, most of the videos of you on YouTube. And in one case, you I, you talk about the fact that he's uh, Herb is just using typography in a uh, in an ad, but he's some of the words are red, and uh, you read it, you in, in understand it that way. But there's another way of understanding it too, right? Maybe you yeah. can explain that. This is actually, I think, to me, like in in the timeline of his work, um, the pivot uh, and and the breakthrough that happened where he, I think, started really focusing on typography as the main place of ideas. And he um, was making, up to that point, very nice, very uh, well-constructed, very beautiful uh, ads that had kind of a little bit of a signature style. But like from that ad, the, the one you described, I think that that changes his practice completely. And I think what he realized is the 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 power of empowering language through the typography. Yeah. The choices every designer has to make about the font that they use, because you have to make that choice. You have to have text on, on the page. You can make any font choice. And he realized just the purity and the simplicity of that font choice, just pausing with that. Hey, we make type choices. They're stylistic. But what I think happened to him is like, well... Is it stylistic? Is what is there? And I think like that allowed him to kind of have a, a, that distance from the space of just like making, 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 and realize that there's a potential in the choice. And he constructed this ad by essentially changing some of the words in the block of text. It's a little bit bigger than normal. Uh, it's just like a description about this drug. This drug does these things. Very kind of bland copy. But by changing some of the words within that uh, text into a different font and a different color they pop and you realize that they connect into a sentence so he's embedding the headline so the first read is the easy read you see those words being larger and you actually read them even though they're not in one line which is transcending like no headline prior to this in advertising was connect like it's a it's a child game he's playing and he knows that you will play along because you're a rational person. You want to see this. So he gets you to read the headline instantly, even though it's actually not connected. And then you realize that the words around them are also read in line. So you read it again. He gets you to read two pieces of text that are different in the same time, basically. So the, the ability to manipulate you as a reader, Very as a viewer, is, is profound with just... Yeah the decision about a typeface, which yeah. is so simple. But I think, you know, to, to what you said earlier is also, I think, interesting. Like the the fact that he was ambidextrous, I feel, you know, is is it played a little bit of a role because yeah. he he was a lefty, mostly. So he wrote with his left hand, but he always drew with his right. And I think about that as a mechanics because typography is not writing in a way. So when I think when he was sketching with text, he's doing this with his right hand, which is more of a drawing process to him. If he's writing a note, he's quickly writing it with his left. But if he's actually drawing letter forms in designs, I think he's doing it with his right, which means he's more focused on the shapes of them and the abstraction of them. And that allows him to kind of see the the, the difference between what words mean and what they look like. And I think that led him to see typography in a formal way. He's kind of able to just suspend that that sense of he. I think he stops reading and sees words for shapes and like, wow, look at this A. It has a triangle inside. 
or an O and has a, a space if I put a face in it. He had this piece, which was like an IQ. Uh, I yes. don't know what it's for, but it's it's a Q, capital Q. And uh, inside the Q is a, an image of an eye, like a rebus. You know, but he's like, oh, there's space. What can I do with that space? You know, it's funny. Uh, I mean, I've taken a few drawing classes and one about one exercise in a, a quite a well-known book. I'm trying to remember, like natural drawing or so or 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 something like that anyway. And it gets you to use your wrong hand to draw a picture of Stravinsky, I think it is. <laughs> and uh, and what you do is, yeah, you just see it as a bunch of lines at different angles, you know, and it, you can't, your rational brain doesn't try to correct you. All you're doing is copying, you know, uh, an angle of a line. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, I think in a way... I think um for him he wasn't like super conscious of all of the stuff I think it was just part of how he was built you know and so this ambidextrousness yeah. the feedback to his brain made different different um things apparent you know and the color blindness made him make certain color yeah. choices it was always it's almost like these two sort of characteristics enable him to get above it all mm-hmm. you yeah. know in a weird in a weird way and you could say kind of handicaps, you know, because certainly in that yeah. time that that was seen. He struggled in school. Uh, he he says this in his in his like uh, biographies and interviews. He was like, I almost got you know flunked out of of Cooper Union. He you know because he struggled. And one of the things that they had to do in that time, they had to take a lot of lettering courses. That was like a way that you know you had to take lettering first year. You had to do some in, in second year. And what is uh, Sasha? What is lettering exactly? That's that's a great question. I mean, lettering in in that time and and certainly uh I think has has had a resurgence. Lettering in a way is um drawing letters um that isn't handwriting nor is it uh something that's typeset. So it's something that lives between handwriting, calligraphy and handwriting and typeset things with fonts. Right. So, so handwriting I, is unique. Yeah. Fonts are repeatable, always the same. And lettering is like drawing letters in a particular context that they live in, a particular word, making it fit really well together. It's unique to that sort of presentation within that mode. And so are you trying to copy a set typeface? Is that what you're trying to do with your um, drawing? Sometimes, yeah. Sometimes lettering is like uh being able to uh replicate a style of a typeface let's say or font uh or or calligraphy perhaps like a 15th century scribe or like a gothic kind of uh, black letter style but do it in a way that's inherently kind of unique and and allows you to improve perhaps on the way that like some letters might fit in the font you know so uh typically lettering is done for like a book cover uh certainly in the 40s and the 50s most of those were hand lettered Uh, a lot of headlines in magazines were hand lettered because it was faster than getting a typeset you just have someone in the studio which uh, in the studios they had something called the bullpen like the baseball analogy it was like a a group of of skilled craftsmen uh draftsmen artists who could be called on on like a project we need this illustration we need this lettering you know here's the text so they would draw things and they would make really nice combinations of of letter forms that like were more succinct uh and, and more harmonious than if they were just maybe typeset 
Okay. Yeah, Dwiggins. Was Dwiggins is known for this sort of calligraphy lettering, right? Yeah, yeah. Dwiggins was 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 someone who kind of spanned the spectrum of of those crafts. He was he was very skilled at calligraphy. He was very skilled at lettering, uh, and he was very skilled in making type and a book designer and and a puppet maker. Maybe you could tell me a bit about Cooper Union because that's where you are, and that's where uh, Herb Levalen went to school. Like. Can you give me a quick little potted uh, history about what what it is, what it does, who who graduated, that kind of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Cooper Union was uh, named after Peter Cooper, um, and the union in in that in that uh, title was the uh, Union of Art and Science, essentially. Uh, Cooper Union uh, was created by Peter in 1859, or, or the school opened its doors in 1859 to give people the ability to learn uh, important skills uh, and be able to kind of progress into the middle class through free education. Peter Cooper was inspired by the Polytechnic Institute, I believe, in Paris, which was uh, essentially kind of like a skilled trade school uh, in, in, in engineering, essentially. And he saw like, you know, there's this burgeoning field of engineering if we can train uh, engineers for free that they don't have to pay. They will improve the so city. What kind of skills for Peter Cooper? Like he um, he worked as an apprentice to a coach maker. Um, I think he had only a few grades of of school. He had to teach himself how to read and write later. Like so, he was he started working as a child, um, missed a big part of schooling, and didn't have reading and writing until later. Um, and he always lamented the fact, like, this is wrong. <laughs> Your kids should be in school and and not be working, and you should acquire these skills and intellectual abilities and intellectual uh, thinking, and there should be places where people can go that, that don't cost anything. And he was an inventor. So I think he saw, like, there should be places where people could be trained and taught to invent things and improve the life of others. And so I think engineering to him was this, like, field where you can make improvements in people's lives. He had a, a factory that built uh, cast iron, um, and they they rolled uh, I beams. It was one of the first to make I beams, which then became essential in the construction of of uh, cast iron buildings in New York, certainly in other places. But this the structural element, and I think he saw this like that's what an engineer does: conceives yeah. a form that's essential to a new type of building that replaces wood, maybe, or or yeah. you know fixes some of these these problems, and and the world progresses everyone benefits from these things and so i think he put a lot of value in this um, inventiveness and he wanted to create a space where that can happen to a a great uh, number of people that would get something that he didn't get as a child as 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 a Mm -hmm. but he was also very uh attuned to the role of art uh and architecture uh which to him i think connect was the connection between the the fine arts and, and engineering uh, especially from the standpoint of the building of New York City and and and, and all those things, um, where he saw the the creative role that art plays and in, in, in terms of uh, communicating and and also as a place for women to to gain uh, an, a, a foothold in the industry, which was you know certainly closed to to unless it's like sweatshop labor, the professional track for for women was was quite restricting and and he saw that like through art making 
because he was introduced to this women's art school, which was in the in the neighborhood, which was not far, uh, who needed a, a, a physical space. And he basically took them into uh, Cooper Union, gave him space. And then after a few years, that school was absorbed into the Cooper Union as as the women's art school. And so it was one of the first, it's not the first in, in America, but like, I would say something like the second or the third school, specifically uh, a place of learning, uh, a trade for women. Uh, what kind of trades? Um, so the way that they saw themselves is like there were programs allowing women to study art, but they were mostly presented as a hobby. If you're middle class, upper class, you you have free time and you go and you paint just yeah, to... Yeah. And these schools, a few of these, including this women's art school in New York, saw themselves as being able to give women a career. And what that meant is like they were trained in art in the classic Beaux-Arts kind of model of, of uh, you, you study from these busts, you study from these uh, paintings, you replicate them, you're given the skills of draftsmanship, and then you can go and work. Um, one of the places you could work is making illustrations let's say illustrations yeah. engravings for publications like like let's say puck magazine which was down down the street uh they would hire sometimes i would say freelance on assignments um we needed image of i don't know someone on a horse because we we're writing the story whatever it is that that was the article they would give these assignments and women would be making those engravings so the women were taught how to make an image and then how to make the image into an engraving so that these these things could be published or working at places like uh, Tiffany's, making the designs. Tiffany had like a, a big um, roster of women who were making the stained glass designs for a lot of the lamps that Tiffany was producing. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the stained glass windows, but but definitely um, the shades. You know, the 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 the, the this new amazing uh, collection of uh, of material that Tiffany was making was was the head of the design sort of of, of that was was um, a woman and there were quite a few alumni of Cooper Union of this women's art school that went to work there. Tiffany made it made it made it very obvious that that he appreciated uh, the leadership of this uh, woman and I'm blanking on her name I should know her name but she uh, was empowered to kind of run this little department and she brought in a lot of other women. And so, this, the, so they were very viable career paths if you had the right skills. Book cover, book cover decoration yes. as well, possibly. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. In the twenties uh, or even before that in the late 19th yeah. century. Yeah. They would do uh, abstract designs when, when book covers weren't printed with, with like the way that we conceive covers where they're more decorated. And then eventually into making images for book covers. So that, yeah, that yeah. definitely, and then that that basically was became the core of how Cooper Union taught students in the first few years. That's why lettering was such an important part because getting a job in publishing of books, if you could do lettering, you can get assignments, and and that's how a lot of women got got placements. Uh, they could do these things essentially kind of freelance. They could be at home raising a family, uh, which is what what happened a lot of women who were in the field in the 30s 40s 50s uh in the book uh publishing space were working from home keeping the household but would have a little uh studio space in the house and they would be writing drawing lettering uh making illustrations for book covers on assignment 
but but the most important thing I wanted to add is like the Cooper Union was free tuition since day one in 1859 all the way up until the the more recent times when unfortunately they they went to tuition, although they're on a 10 year plan to be back to free, which they will be free at some point soon. Mm -hmm. I was just going to add that Richard Minsky came out with a, a lovely book on uh, on these sort of decorated book uh, covers uh, that from that era. Yeah, it's beautiful. So, uh, okay, so uh, so Herb went to Cooper Union and then he became entranced by typography. Why? According to him, he was wasn't doing well. Uh, in his first years of study and uh, because there was such a heavy emphasis on writing letter forms being left-handed was not uh, great like left-handers typically because you're you're writing against the page and your hand essentially could smudge and will smudge so there was this like any left-hander who who went to calligraphy the teachers were like and this, I've heard this from, from multiple people who went to Cooper. They're like, they get a pat on the back and they say, this is going to be impossible for you. So I'm just going to give you a lot of slack here. Do the best you can. I won't judge you harshly. And, and it was very pejorative. Like, yeah. try hard. You're still going to fail. It's not for you. Very classic kind of harsh. And he had this very similar experience. Although what he says, what he did, he had the teacher who was like, do the best you can. I'll give you sort of more credit for the quality of the work that you'll produce because I know it's going to be hard for you to do with the left hand. What Lubalin says he did is he was like, I just didn't tell him that I was ambidextrous. They expected me to do this left-handed. I did it, I did it right-handed because I would draw right-handed. And in a way, it makes sense. He calligraphy is closer to drawing in a way because you're trying to be really conscious of the shapes you're making. So he just did it with his right hand and the teacher was so astounded that the quality, again, according to LeBallon, he was like, wow, you did so great. And and that praise, LeBallon said, meant so much to him. He was finally kind of okay with with something. And he took that really to heart. And he started really using letters and and kind of found that this is my thing you know this is something i'm kind of good at and i think it just stayed with him and i think when he started working in the field when he finally landed in this like safe uh place that trusted him and at this uh design agency that was doing pharma these ideas of his love for letter form started i think rising to the surface and he started really finding um solutions within them so i but i think the seed was planted by this like not just a pat in the back. You did okay, buddy. It was like, yeah. wow. And yeah. he said, you know, it's basically was built on a fib. I just never owned up to the fact that I did it right-handed. He's like, I'll take the praise. I'll take the praise. <laughs> well, and he worked right the way up to the very top of his, uh, of the art director's profession, right? Which is, which was like, you know, the Don Draper kind of, yeah, I mean, it was illustrious, right? Yeah, he was, yeah, he was up up there. Um, George Lois, who was in, you know, the, the, the canon of like, you know, the madman, although Lois d- d- dislikes that term because he's like, that. that's not really how it was. But certainly in the in the canon, George Lois worked with LeBallon at Sidland Hennessy for a few years as the second oh, art director. Alongside LeBallon. So they knew each other from um, 
uh, the 50s, before Lois's career really took off. And I think it took off when he left uh, that studio and, and kind of went to a couple of places and he really found his. But I think... Esquire, my, you mean, that's the big yeah, thing, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. And I, in my conversations with Lois, he was so generous and so kind and so he loved he adored LeBallon he said like right. he was just the sweetest person and meant a lot I think to him as a young man and LeBallon was was a little bit older than him uh, but I feel like Lois learned a lot about this idea of language and the power of language and the power of design through our direction I think a lot of a lot of those ideas that he brought into advertising that that you know, placed them on the map was something that he saw from LeBallon's work. But you're absolutely right. LeBallon was up there in the in the big uh, madman. In the like, canon. Yeah. yeah okay. In the canon of okay. these. Yeah. He got to the very, very top there by mid-50s. He was in, in the top ranks. Which to makes... the point where Southern Hennessy added his name to the studio. The studio became Southern yes. LeBallon. He does a, a, a lovely what, corporate identity package that uh, that features typography yeah yeah this kind of new l l like addition sort of 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 this form sh beautifully kind of locked up and and what's interesting too about that and and i think it's worth worth saying just in the context of this conversation that a lot of um which was surprising to me but a lot of the work that he's really well known for the very expressive yeah. calligraphic stuff, including that that lovely SHNL composition, was done by other people. Uh, once he, he did... was his idea, though. No, <laughs> it was his idea. It was his yeah. his inventiveness, and he's art directing it. But the execution was by the staff that he surrounded himself with, and and he made right. sure he had the best people in the country. And I also have to make it clear that Lubella was always forthcoming with that. It wasn't a secret. That's how the trade was set up. But he always credited his his people, the people that made this work. The people yeah. that crafted it. Yeah. Like Tom Carnese did most of the famous logos, most of the famous calligraphic work, including the logo for Avant-Garde. And Tom Carnese drew the typeface, Avant-Garde Gothic. It was art directed by LeBallon, but the actual work of making those drawings of those letter forms was Tom Nice. So, and and LeBallon always, always made sure that he credited them in in conversations. And right. also, Tom Carnese was elevated to the partner level uh, for about a decade. He was in the studio's name. The studio is LeBallon Smith Carnese. It's the longest incarnation of uh, the longest name in LeBallon entities. He kept changing names because he was adding partners. But Tom Carnese's name was. You know, on the door, on the business card, he was a full partner in the studio, and he was predominantly a lettering artist in the studio. He did most of the lettering heavy stuff. So he was like, I need a, an, a, an excellent letterer. You were going to be a partner. You're going to yeah. be on the door. That, that meant a lot. Yeah. Again, I, I just think of William Morris and uh, this whole idea of fulfillment in work and not this idea of basically how can I exploit this person? Yeah, he was mindful because I think he understood that was also, this is my speculation, but I, I think he understood that that was one way that he can keep them happy because the yes. studio, when he left Sutherland Hennessy on the heels of Eros 
magazine design, he kind of embraced this this freedom, this newfound freedom of of having the carte blanche from Ralph Ginsburg to do whatever he wanted. I think he was like, wow, this is amazing. I don't want to do advertising. <laughs> I want to do this. Well, that's right. And you say that he does. He never did like advertising. He's just trying to force stuff on people that, you know, they don't really want, you know. Yeah, and, he said, I don't uh, I don't want I, I don't like advertising because it makes people buy things that they don't need. Uh, it's, yes, it's exactly. Quote from him. And I think he really found tension in that space by 62 and by 64 he was done and started his own studio and i i know that there's like uh, a number of uh, projects that he did some of the more interesting or the more graphic or i would say even some of the most famous pieces of his were work that he gave away to clients he had people who were like i would love herb for you to design something for me but i just could never afford you and he's like i'll just do it anyway that that's the the story that uh, you you tell about Sippy uh, Pinelli's. You uh, you say that Ralph Ginsburg has this idea about doing these magazines. He figures that Herb's going to be too expensive, right? Yeah. Uh, but thankfully, uh, he is directed to to Herb, and and Herb goes for it and and takes a gigantic risk. He's at the top of his game, and and here he is doing a, a an erotic magazine. Yeah, in the studio, in like in in as a billing client in a relatively yeah. conservative studio that like their clients were very um, small, medium sized corporations. There, I think there was a ton of potential backlash um, that they yeah. could have faced. I mean, it's the classic. You like, love that. You gotta and, love that ballsiness. Yeah, you do yeah. Love I mean, that. I talked to his assistant, uh, Faye Faye Burrows, who was his uh, very trusted uh, assistant in, in Southern Hennessy. And I said, how did he do this? How did he convince the agency yeah. to bring in an erotic magazine? Yeah. And she's like, he just had this faith, you know, that they wouldn't have a problem. And they were like, we trust you. Yeah. And I said, like, was this really, like, did he do this at home? Like, or in his quiet hours? She was like, no, no, this was a build. There were invoices. The thing is, though, I mean, we look at it with today's eyes, and it's it's harmless. It's, it's it is. Not, I mean, even compared to Playboy at the time, it really wasn't. It wasn't much. Yeah. And this, and we're getting right into the meat of our conversation here, because uh, because the reason that I'm talking to you is because because Steve Heller sort of lit a flame about magazines, and then it was then it was a slam dunk when uh, Stephen the Lamezo, uh, the great magazine collector, I interviewed him. And, and this is what I love about what you've been doing with your presentations is that you do combine, you know, the lives and the work of these people. But you also mentioned the fact that you can pick this stuff up for nothing. And you know, that's exactly that's exactly what I've done. I've got all the avant garde. I've got the four. I got the four eros and I'm now working on fact magazine in fact i'm going to try and get a bunch of them before i put this before i put this out <laughs> not that there weren't a lot of them but still mm -hmm. yeah it's it's incredible and i think it's um it makes me um always surprised when i say this and i just encounter this that like to me it's it's like the best of labellan and it's kind of under the radar you know, and I think it speaks to the way the history and the canon is constructed, the history of graphic design, the way it's told. 
And I think there's there's another because um, I, I always like wonder like why is there not a bigger attention in the design history books? And I think p- part of what why I think that is is that time. I think my my sense, and and I'm speculating, but this is just the theory that I have, is that when design history started to be really written, what happened in the 80s, early 80s, they're about Megs, Megs, exactly. And and I think by that point, and Megs actually does a good job. He's one of the few writers in the, 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 the series of design history books that have come out. He actually spends a good deal of time talking about the balance and relationship to Eros fact and avant-garde most other publications like show the avant-garde maybe typeface maybe the logo that's like the only connection to Ginsburg that's made and Megs actually kind of spends some amount of time talking about their relationship and also like the position of those magazines and how radical they were but it's 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 surprising how little um depth is given but I think by the 80s that work has kind of was passe a little bit it's kind of got like Oh, it's the New York School of Design. It just kind of gets lumped into. And I think Ginsburg's reputation by the 80s was suffering um, because of having gone to prison. I think he tried to rally his career after prison and sort of revive his space. He did some some a circuit of lectures. He really he tried to kickstart uh, uh, avant-garde back up. And Ginsburg said it nearly bankrupted me. I couldn't afford it. And he completely just gave up and went into uh, photojournalism. Well, what know. does that mean? Um, Ginsburg started, he kind of says it, it it's almost um, like a paparazzi. He just realized that he needed to make money. Yeah. He liked photography. And so he picked up the camera and started uh, photographing and, and trying to place his work with tabloids. So he worked and with did he, he, I hope he didn't die in poverty. See, the sense I have um, is that money never stayed with Ginsburg. Um, I've always wondered like how he was able to finance such a lavish publication like Arrows. Yeah. And my understanding is that he did something really smart. He got a job at Esquire magazine. And he got a job at Esquire magazine on the back of the research that he was doing into Comstock. And he right. placed this idea with with. I believe Gingrich was the publisher of, of Esquire at the time. He said, he sold them on this idea. I have a story that I could write for you. And the story is the history of erotic literature. Because his research into Comstock led him to un- uncover how uh, places like Library of Congress cataloged pornographic literature. They just were hiding it. They kept it. They figured out what the code was. Right. It wasn't in the P section in the in the index cards. Um, and he started pulling together this like bibliography with some notes and, and comments. And he sold this as a as a possible idea to to Gingrich as a story in Esquire. It was like, okay, I could they could see you got some ideas. So he got a job. The story never came to 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 pass. And you mean just one job, like one article, or he continued he, to write? He got articles? he got he got hired on the staff by showing okay. him have this idea. And yeah. Gingrich, I think, was like, look, you'll come and maybe now we own the story. We'll work on the story. You'll work on this, but also you'll get assignments. He did a good job, I guess, over over some some amount of years. And he got a raise and he had a meeting with Gingrich. To, to Gingrich was going to tell him, like, I'm giving you a raise. And the way Ginsburg tells him is like, tells the story is like, I went into this meeting and he tells me, here's your raise. And Ginsburg is like, um, I don't want the raise. And Gingrich is like, what do you mean? 
the race. You did well. He's like, I know that you're probably not going to run the story that I brought to you about the history of erotic literature. And he's like, yes, I don't think so. It's just not a good fit. Doesn't work. He's like, okay, how about I trade you the raise for the rights to that story? I take the rights back. No raise. And he's like, your money. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Do you. And Ginsburg took the rights because I think he had lined up a publisher already by that point. So he had regained the rights to the story. He published the book. It sold, I think, a million copies. It, it did really, really well. I think it's called The Unhurried View of Erotica. And it was published in hardcover and then soft uh, paperback. And I think he, he got a sizable advance. I think he had like a, a, a pretty good pile of money, all of which he used to finance Eros magazine. An interesting fact that um, he gave an interview the day before he went to prison in 1972. He gave a long interview to New York Times. They ran it in the magazine. The, the reporter spent a day with him because he was waiting for the call from the governor, potential call from the governor with the yes. party. In that story, in the interview that he's uh, saying, he's like, I was secretly glad that the magazine was was shuttered after four issues because he said, I don't think I would have had enough money after the fifth issue. We would have been bankrupt. And he was like, I was kind of glad that it was shut down by another entity and I couldn't afford it. So that's what I mean. I think money came and money went out. Money came, money went out. Things, And I don't think that he was ever in a good place financially, but he did what he could. And I think his photojournalism... He was very proud of it. You know, he published a book of his photographs. It's called 365 Days in New York, I think. And so there's a photo for every day of the year, which is this like kind of funny idea. He also had a book of birds. He's photographing birds around New York. He put a book together of birds. He was trying, you know, he's really trying. I love this guy. I mean, he's a great writer and he's, and he's a, he's creative and he goes into some expressing himself with photography after. It's like, it's just wonderful. Because the law, the, the arrows case, he was convicted. Uh, because of the losing the case to a Goldwater. I think his reputation was, was, was in tatters. And I think people were like, oh, that guy. Oh, right. Yeah. Do you yeah, want to, well, and he lost his case? Mm, I don't, yeah. so I think he, he suffered from that. Uh, and I think that's which, why. Which he, is exactly what the establishment wanted. <laughs> yes. They got exactly what they set out to do to destroy his career. Yeah. Well, marginalized, but also, yeah, paint him as a kook or a, pervert or whatever and it it was intentional on the part of bobby kennedy yes you talk about about (laughs) in one of the one of the uh issues of eros that yeah well you tell the story yeah the second issue the 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 summer issue of of uh 62 uh second uh, volume of of uh eros uh the first feature is on john kennedy and yeah. the feature is called We All Love Jack, which I think is also very interesting that they choose yes. to use Jack. Yeah. He's the sitting president. And it could be read two ways. Like, it's disrespectful. <laughs> John yeah. Kennedy, JFK, there are lots of things that they could say. But I think it's actually a way to humanize that figure. He's not president yeah. as an idea. He's a human, flesh and blood, and he's handsome. He's attractive. And so he's horny. 
Yes. <laughs> right. Stuff that is like kind of public knowledge. So they run this feature showing Kennedy with in, in a photo series, essentially, of Kennedy with women. And there's a very uh, striking photo of, of Jack and uh, Grace Kelly. And Grace Kelly is sort of like, you know, giving him this, this, this like yeah. look. Gazing adoration is what yes. it is. <laughs> and he's also like in this in that photo, it's a brilliant photo because he's just kind of like oblivious. He's like pointing something out. This is like just outside the White House. Yeah. Um, as as a as a state visit from from the princess. Grace was the princess of Monaco at the time. And and it's just so telling. It's like he's just in his own little bubble, but he exudes this charm and 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 attractiveness, and people are just completely drawn to him. And it's genius. And the best part yeah. about it, all those photos were from photo agencies. They're they're not paparazzi. Yeah. They're just you know stuff that everybody had access to. And and when that story came out, Bobby Kennedy was, uh, yeah, he was not thrilled. He was not thrilled that that his brother, you know, this paints him in this like very unsavory light. So yeah. he just had an axe to grind. And the biography of Bobby Kennedy, written by his aide, uh, talks to that moment. And the aide talks about how conflicted Bobby felt. By the fourth issue, they felt he went too far, but not far enough. There's like going to be a hard case to make. Um, but the aide in this book says, I advised Bobby Kennedy by saying this, Ralph Ginsburg wants you to come after him. This is the tactic that he's playing. If he hasn't done the thing that is punishable yet he will so do it now before it's too late before it's all embarrassing for everybody and so he you you know he speculates that that was the reason that bobby was like okay because they went around the censor the censor didn't censor this fourth issue but uh ralph ginsburg was indicted on 27 federal criminal charges despite the fact that the magazine wasn't censored and the magazine was was censored by unofficially censored by internally by Bobby Kennedy on the on the pretext of the fact that um the interracial photographs in the magazine were going to cause too much noise and too much problems for the Kennedys in their push for civil rights that they just felt like they have to make this go away. Yeah, this is a this is a kind of a tells you that it's not a, a, a simple decision. There's all sorts of complexities involved as to why or why they didn't go ahead and press charges. But uh, so Ginsburg goes, he fights this in court for ten years, right? Yeah, the 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 actual legal battle I think for him was shorter just because of procedure and, and, and kind of the timing and the slowness of how the legal system kind of works. But I think he was, his Supreme Court appeal, which I think was heard twice, the ruling by the Supreme Court, which I think they appealed, uh, which was denied, they all happened, I think, around 68, 69, something like that. Uh, okay. And then he was finally sort of, the, the conviction was upheld. And he was at that point, I think, just trying to see what else he had. And I think at that point was just lobbying the governor. Okay. Uh, but he had a sentencing date and he was um, uh, actually his last appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, they were 
leniently reduced his five-year prison sentence to three. So I think like in those years between like 68, 69 to 72, when he went to prison, he was trying to kind of lower the, the, the time and he was hoping for a pardon, which never came, but he spent uh, 10 years essentially on bail, uh, fighting this case. And, and yeah, in 72, he goes to prison, which is also everything in America changed by 72. Mm, Yeah. Yeah. Which made it even more kind of absurd. Exactly. And I think he he was trying to be very vocal about, like, why is this still happening to me? Well, and the other thing I think that he was upset about, uh, as you tell it, is uh, is that the mainstream media just didn't come to his rescue. They just, yeah, they just ignored him. And in fact, that's what prompted fact the, the next magazine after Eros. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, it's, uh, this is such a fascinating magazine story. I, I, I'm so happy to have the, the issues that I have thanks to you, incidentally, just have prompting me to go out and get them. But, the, but as you say, this is a period, uh, and these three magazines are, well, it's part of magazine lore, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. It's surprising how little attention these three publications get, are given in the in the history of american magazines but they're so pivotal and and because of the censorship issue i think so i think predominantly the fact that he was convicted uh and and he lost the case against uh or or he lost the case to uh goldwater i think it just basically like washed the publication discredited his credibility fact. Uh, and, yeah. yeah for fact and and i think avant-garde was too uh i think like kooky for for most people at the time i think it was like seen as like a very hippie kind of thing like yeah. that didn't have substance but it's incredible in substance i think ginsburg was uh, a really good editor a really good he had a really good sense of articles not all there's also unfortunately some homophobia that slips through in in fact magazine so you know i think he was generous and 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 uh, progressive you could say for for his time but w- with certain like blind spots for sure. Yeah. Right? So I think yeah. like that's important to acknowledge, but he had a really good sense of good articles. He was truly a good editor uh, and yeah. writer. And, and I think he really had a good knack for finding these things. And so the public does no, hasn't really had a chance to look at them closely and to really kind of reassess the, the, the actual content of these. And I think because his reputation suffered, like they, the mainstream just made a mockery of him the the government did a very shrewd thing of painting him as a pornographer. Yes. Uh, and that was a very easy button in the time to really press. And the fact that the case was his, the Eros case was tried in Philadelphia is just astounding. And, and so insidious because the, the there's nothing related to Pennsylvania except for a, a, a kind of, I would say maybe foolish decision. I'm sure Ginsburg regretted it, but he went to, the town of intercourse in um pennsylvania to ask the postmaster if he would mail eros magazines because he knew <laughs> that he planned to have the magazine mailed in a brown envelope he just wanted the postmark from yeah that, that's just so in your face ballsy and <laughs> almost yeah. over the top almost over, over the, the top, top. yeah yeah, yeah, but Philadelphia yeah. at the time, the mayor of Philly rose to uh was elected on the campaign to rid the city of smut. So they were like, he right. went to Pennsylvania, 
let's have the case in, in a federal court in Philly and we'll get a shoe in because we'll get the jury. And his lawyers, Ginsburg's lawyers advised him not to go with the jury. They opted, they said, you know, go with the judge. And, and the judge was in a way kind of worse because he was very, uh, very blatantly biased. Like there, there yeah. are instances in the transcript of the court case where the judge interrupts the witness and steps in for the prosecution and grills very, very much um, leads the witness. <laughs> it's like, well, and the great thing is that judge's name is body. Yeah. <laughs> well, just, uh, just sort of winding down here. I just, uh, they're just and getting back to Herb LeBalin. First of all, I've got this. I'm just holding up. It's not the first one. He redesigns in, in late 61. He redesigns the Saturday evening post so you know again putting on my collector's hat i want to get those early ones yeah and again they they're not hard to find yeah then herb works on the facts and then avant-garde then he goes he starts up uh, upper and lower case right yes yeah can you tell me a bit about that herb had a business relationship with uh, Aaron Burns, who is a very um, influential person in the typesetting industry. Um, a lot of jobs that that uh, Herb did that were kind of um, the more uh, special or kind of jobs that required like really precise typesetting craftsmanship. He usually worked with Aaron because he knew they were on the same page for that. So they had conceived of this idea that they could also have a business where they would handle typesetting for other clients. As a studio, they would take jobs and then also handle the typesetting, which means that they are also getting keeping profits. They're kind of profiting off yeah. of the bigger part of it. Uh, as as part of that work, they started uh, using some of the lettering for for some some of the jobs that they did, turning them into fonts and then selling them, offering them to other clients. And one of the typefaces that they did this with was the lettering for the avant-garde logo, which they turned into the typeface avant-garde gothic. By the time Avant-Garde Gothic was ready in 1970, they had um, created a company called International Typeface Corporation, ITC, because they were like, we have this amazing catalog of typefaces that clients really want. Let's just build a whole industry around it. So they created, using that sort of logo um, this with these joining forms and created this like expanded set of ligatures and kind of uh, letters that are intertwining and it was very popular and they made a very successful business out of it uh on the back of these fonts and Aaron realized uh that there was a you know what do we do for marketing how do we market these things you know everyone just sends out little catalogs with samples they're quite boring and i think because of herb's interest in mag- magazines he conceived with Aaron this idea of like, let's make a magazine and give it away to people. The magazine would only use our typefaces so we can show people how to use them, how to use them well. And let's give them something to read stories about design, stories about typography, stories about like, so it's a trade publication that, that speaks the language of these studios and art directors and also gives them like the marketing pitch of these are cool fonts you should use these fonts because every page of you and i'll see at the bottom credited this page uses this and this and this typeface from itc and it was a genius move because it allowed them to create uh, another vehicle where they can experiment herb could like play around and and have carte blanche which which he had with ginsburg and this is 74 so 
uh, by that point, uh, they're not working together with Ralph or uh, they're, they're working on a couple of pieces, like quietly. They're not very expressive, but, um, he, he maintained some projects with Ralph, but the big ones avant garde was over by then. So he needed, I think, like another platform, another place. And, and what Herb did is he became the editor of UNLC. So he was both editing kind of, I think, like, like Ralph. He was like, this is fun. <laughs> I get to yeah, choose yeah. things. I get to write things. I get to frame things. I have ideas. Like, let's, let's create a column. They had a column called Ms. MS dot. Uh, I think like not in the first issue, but very quickly, I'm not sure if it's the first year or the second year of the publication where they were highlighting women in, in the field, women in design, women in lettering. So he understands his position, I think, genuinely of power and, and giving space to people that are not talked about. It's certainly in the seventies, you know, women were like somewhat still marginalized in the design industry, underpaid, uh, uh, you know, so he was like, let's talk about the wonderful women who are making this work and let's give them kind of a, a spotlight. So I think, I think, you know, it, it was a really interesting period for him. And I think he spent a big part of his life creatively in the studio focusing on UNLC design from 73, 74, I think is when it started, all the way to 81 when he passed away. He, he's lucky. He kind of sidestepped this pornographer label. Yeah, he, he was, I think, very lucky uh, that nothing really came because, you know, and also tellingly, like the government just really was like focused, locked in, like Ralph, this is the person we really need to. Yeah. Yeah. Because it wasn't really about the magazine. It was actually not about the content. It was about the person behind the content. Let's go after them. When Ginsburg approached Lobellin to design Fact Magazine, my understanding is that uh, Herb told him, I am so sorry that you're the one being targeted for this. And he didn't charge Ginsburg for the design services of, of doing Fact Magazine. Even though that was one of the first projects probably he picked up, as a new studio, he was, he created his own studio. And like one of the first thing he does is give work away, <laughs> which you need the money and he's giving work. But I think he felt so guilty and, and responsible because there's a number of things that uh, Herb certainly influenced in the publication. Like I know uh, that the Marilyn Monroe photographs were in that third issue of Eros because he had a personal relationship with Bert Stern. They had worked together. So he had an in to Bert and he found out about the X's, the marks that Marilyn had made on her photos. And he was like, this is intriguing. This is a really good story. I think he helped negotiate the, the licensing or however, what the, whatever the agreement was to get those photos. So her, I think, played a much bigger role in the magazine, even on an editorial uh, level than he gave himself credit. In interviews, he usually says the couple of times he's asked about Eros, he's like, uh, it was a job. I was hired yeah. to do a job and I try to do the best job I can. Um, and he kind of just distances himself a little bit. But I know for, for a fact, like I think his involvement was much more uh, hands-on and a little bit more direct in the editor. Uh, editorial angle uh, or some of the stories. So I think he was like, we did this together, kind of. <laughs> like, I And you get to suffer for it. Uh, I hope you don't go to prison, but let me give you at least something. Uh, here's a design for free. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you, uh, Sasha, for, for giving us such a great description of these two 
two men behind the content. It's a wonderful story, and and I'm going to snap up as many of these magazines before this goes on air as I can. <laughs> Glad to hear that, Nigel. I, I really appreciate the 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 opportunity to speak with you about this because it's I as you said, like I I genuinely feel very passionate about this because I I find a lot of inspiration, and and you said this at the very beginning, like I think we're we're in a very particularly fraught times where these ideas and and uh, these individuals could and should be an inspiration to how we live our lives today in the context of the aggression that my family is experiencing in Ukraine right now. So I feel like there, there are some lessons and, and maybe a little bit of modeling of how to be in a particularly tricky time, which the 60s, you know, were Vietnam, everything before. So mm-hmm. there's some really good things that I think we can learn and, 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 and be uh, inspired by some of these individuals. And so I hope I hope that carries and hope people feel like inspired. Well, it's been inspiring talking to you, I must say. So uh, thanks again. Sasha Takalovsky is a designer, typographer, instructor, and curator at the Cooper Union's Herb Lubalin Center of Design and Typography in New York City. Thanks again for your time. It's been great. My pleasure, Nigel. My pleasure. Now, Sasha, do you do you just focus on Lubaun or do you know more about like because uh, I want to go nuts on mag- mag- <laughs> magazines. I've gone nuts on books for the last more than 10 years. I, I do. Just- yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, like if, if, if I would love for you to visit us one day uh, soon to see because we have a collection, I'd say like maybe 2000 pieces of Lubaun's work because that's kind of as much as as. I think volume, but the collection is about 70,000 pieces overall. So we have 125 years of design here and, and, and a very good collection of magazines and, and some very fun, obscure, interesting magazines. I, 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 you know, part of my job in a way is to seek things that are interesting that, that fill certain holes in the collection, uh, that speak to time, place, makers, ideas, uh, themes. Uh, and, and the other part of my job is to kind of know as much as I can, if I can about these objects, because we're a public facing institution. Like we have about 3000 people coming through our doors every year. We're open to the public. We have an open archive. So when people come in and say, I'm looking for, uh, pieces that talk to 1960s New York hotel culture this easily can happen and i need to know which pieces we have that will highlight that for them part of my just like human like nature like i'm super inquisitive about everything just like what is this so it's just like my my own curiosity but also like i feel like i need to make the connections for and i i that that example i give you is like an actual um request we had a small design team come in from new york city studio that were working on the design of a hotel in new york that wanted to have like a 60s new york vibe so they're like what what does that look like show us that so i was like okay so here's like this 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 this. let's look at like this from this angle from here and i just kind of need to know like where these ideas might reside because it's it's not just like let's look at photos of hotels in the 60s it's like other things that and and because my training is graphic design like that's how i think designers work and so i'm like i know what you're looking for 
So I'm like, okay, so it's not just this. So not, I know that your arc is like this. So let me like find the things that fit to this arc of, of, of. So yeah, I, I, I. Well, uh, you know what's so great about that <laughs> is that you really are putting this collection to use, which is, which is what you want with a yeah. collection, obviously, right? You don't, you don't want it to just sit there and get dust on it. You want to get it out and, and use it and, and, and. Cause those, those things are made to be consumed. You know, and for them yeah. to be gathering dust, like that, that, that is, you know, basically, uh, completely, uh, eliminating its, its initial function, you know, even though it's old, just because it's old doesn't mean it's not relevant. And it actually maybe helps us like overcome some of these misunderstandings or these like willing distortions of history. <laughs> well, and help make the world a better place, really. Exactly. Uh, you know, <laughs> that would be a good goal for all of us to have. Very good. Well, hopefully I'll, uh, this will, uh, create a bit more work for you and uh, more people coming into the, uh, coming into the center. Yeah. That would be wonderful. And I really appreciate the platform, Nigel. Very good. Okay. Well, thanks again for your time. Pleasure to talk great. to you.